All right, Romans chapter 10. Paul continues his discourse. He reiterates that desire that he gave in 9, 1 and 2. In 10, 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, when he says Israel, he's speaking of the nation, national Israel. He says, verse 2, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Being a Jew, he bears record to the fact that the nation of Israel has a zeal of God. Now, just like today, if today you were to publicly say that the Jewish people needed the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved, if you were to say that in the average religious context, they would ridicule you for supposing that the Jewish people didn't have God. Why? Because they're devout. They're religious. They have a zeal toward God. So Paul said, listen, I won't go on record. These people of Israel, these descendants of Jacob do have a zeal toward God. I bear them a record. But he said it's not according to knowledge. In other words, it's a sincere zeal, but it's based on ignorance. He said, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So he said, they are active, zealous, going about. That indicates action, motion, that indicates activity. They're going about to establish, that same word is translated stand many places. They're going about to stand up, to establish, to present their own righteousness but he said it's, it's based on ignorance because they've not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. What you have here are two competing, mutually exclusive methods of obtaining righteousness. One of them is the Old Testament law, which involves works, as we'll see in the coming chapter. And the other one is the gift of righteousness, which we've already read about in the book of Romans, which is given to everyone that believes. And they said these Jews are zealous. They're very religious. They're very active going about to establish their own righteousness. Now, what does he mean their own righteousness? He means that righteousness that one attains through prayer, meditation, through repentance, through all methods that you would use to take the law of God, the word of God, look at it, read it and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep the Sabbath. I'm going to read the scripture. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship. I'm going to go to the synagogue. I'm going to do everything God says do. And I'm going to establish myself in righteousness. That's the righteousness Paul's talking about. That's your own righteousness. He said they're going about to establish their own righteousness. That is right doing based on the law. But nonetheless, the end result is that the righteousness they attain unto will be their own. Something they achieved through their efforts. The righteousness of God is founded upon not just right doing, but a right relationship to God. Now picture a man who is attempting to please his bride. Say he's newly married. And so he has all these different things he's read about that will please her and gain her favor. One of them is that he needs to brush his teeth that he needs to dress well and take baths. So this he does very zealously. 
Another thing he needs to do is he needs to work hard and give her flowers and candy. And so here he is, he's busy going about doing all of these things and building up this situation whereby he's going to please her. And she's standing in the middle of the floor while he's running around her, busy doing all these things. And she feels very alone. Because what he's doing is looking in the mirror and checking out how well he looks, how well he smells, how well he's done this and how well he's done that. And he's forgotten her in the whole process. That's exactly where the Jews had come to. They were active doing the law of God and participating in all the religious activities. And they're running around zealous, establishing their own righteousness. And God was standing there saying, excuse me, I'm here. Here I am. I'm here. I'm right here. And they ran around him doing something to please him. And he was saying, listen, what about me? God created us to be in fellowship with him. Adam was placed in the garden, not to exist as an independent righteous soul, not to impress God or maintain some level of obedience that would make him acceptable to God. Adam was placed in the garden so that he would abide in fellowship with God. That's what God wanted. God wanted Adam's attention. He wanted Adam to look into his face. God wanted Adam to walk by faith. By faith, I mean not some inner power resource of the personality whereby we walk in some mystical or ethereal manner. What God wanted Adam to do was walk in trust as two friends walk. He wanted Adam to, to look into his face, believe his word, trust him, and depend on God for those things that were unseen and unknown. When Adam was scared, God wanted Adam to come to him. When Adam was failed to understand, God wanted Adam to come to him. The Jews had forgotten that they had a creator God who wanted their fellowship. And they immersed themselves in a religion that their God gave them. And their religion never took them to God. It just took them to a place to where they hoped to establish a level of religious fervency that God couldn't pass up. He'd have to accept. And he said they're ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own. They'd accepted religion in the place of God. Do you realize that that's true in all ages? It's true today. That many people are engaged in living a Christian life and have left Christ out of it. That they're engaged in doing what a Christian is supposed to do and, and not doing what a Christian is not supposed to do. And many people do those things well. And yet, having established their own righteousness, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. And it becomes a total failure. How absurd religious acts are. Just think about it. We've got a living, eternal God. And down here on earth, men are scrambling to get to a church service so they can serve God and be good Christians. Are they scrambling to get up and, and read a book or read a portion of scripture and, and kneel in a certain way and pray a certain prayer in order to gain favor from this eternal God? Some people go so far as to light candles like God cared, to light candles and kneel in front of them and pray or go through some catechism or some sprinkling of this or drinking or eating of that 
And all these things, somehow man has developed the idea that this is going to make him close to God, going to make him righteous. Religion, what a dead, lifeless, pretentious thing. And yet the world is absolutely full of religion to this day. Men are going about to establish their own righteousness and have not submit themselves. Notice the word submit themselves. The implication here is that to turn from self-made righteousness. By self-made, I mean they're using the law of God, but it's still self-made. To turn from self-made righteousness to righteousness which is received by faith requires submission. It requires submission because the person has to submit his intellect. He has to submit his efforts. He has to submit his will. He has to submit his repentance. He has to submit all aspects of his religious, moral, and social being to what God says. He has to surrender to the revelation of God as opposed to what his own imagination conceives that religion must be. So it requires submitting themselves under the righteousness of God. He says, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Christ is the end. Now, the surface meaning and the one we tend to grab real quick when we read this is we assume this passage is saying that when you have Christ, you no longer have to keep the law because Christ is all the righteousness you need. Now that's true, but that's not all that this passage is saying. The word end here, the Greek word is not the termination of something. That's not what it's saying. He's saying he's not saying this is the cessation of seeking righteousness when you come to Christ. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is like we use the term, to what end do you do this? To what end is this conversation? We're not talking about bringing the thing to a close. We're talking about the object of the conversation. So he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In other words, Christ is the object of our pursuit in righteousness. He is the goal of religion, the culmination of a quest. He's the realization of all human need. He's the pinnacle of righteousness. He's the fulfillment of the human heart's desire. He's the missing element. You see, unrighteousness is just the fruit of the broken relationship. When one by faith comes to Christ, he has arrived at that object, that purpose of his existence. When one comes to Christ, he's come back to the foundations of humanity. You see, we were not created to live separately from God. We're not endowed with sufficient resources to live separate from God. God created us to be dependent upon fellowship and communion with him. And so when one seeks righteousness, Christ is really the object of that pursuit. The law and goodness is a pitiful falling short of that goal. So when one believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is the end, the object, the goal, the pursuit of that righteousness. Having come to him, we've come to the fullness of righteousness. We've come to the pinnacle of all righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law 
that the man which doeth those things shall live by them in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. In other words, the man that does the law lives because he does it, is what it's saying. Or that if a man does all the law, it will result in giving him life. He said, it speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. Obviously, those are two pretty impossible things, to ascend into heaven, to bring Christ down, or descend in the deep, to bring him back up. He's saying God's not requiring anything monumental of you. He's not requiring you to perform some impossible feat. He says, verse 8, but what saith it? What does the scripture say in Deuteronomy 30, 11 and 14? He says, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith, which we preach. Now, these two chapters are going to be absolutely full of quotes. Half of the verses are quotes. The reason he's going back to Deuteronomy, he's showing that the law of Moses anticipated a different righteousness from the law. He's showing that the Old Testament writings of Moses knew and predicted this coming gift of righteousness. And therefore, the Jews are responsible to have known that. And if they don't know it, then their ignorance is blameworthy. He's explaining why it is that he has this heart's desire that Israel might be saved, and they're not. Verse 9, but if thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He is interpreting that Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 30, in its present context. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now do you notice here that he's not giving the Romans road to salvation? He's not giving you the final step, something for you to do in order to be saved? He's simply saying that the Old Testament predicted that the word of faith was nigh unto you. It was in your heart. It's in your mouth. It's so close to you. It's not something you had to go into heaven to get or to send down into hell to bring back up. He said, in fact, that word of faith is right in your mouth. That all you need to do is confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God's raised him the dead and you'll be saved. He said, that's the way this gift of righteousness works, which is so different from the Old Testament righteousness of the law. He says, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That's in Isaiah 28, 16. In other words, when he says not be ashamed, he's not saying that you, he's not promising you that you won't suffer any emotional embarrassment. What he's saying is that, that this new covenant, this gift of righteousness is so effectual that if you believe it, you don't have to worry about it failing you. You don't have to worry about this gift of righteousness coming short and not measuring up to what the law was able to do. He says, verse 12, for there's no difference between Jew and the Greek. Now, he's let the cat out of the bag here. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The Jew would have trouble with that. For the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. So he's given us that Old Testament passage which says that you don't have to descend in the deep to bring Christ up. The words now you even in your heart, in your mouth, the word of faith, what you preach. He said, if that's true, if this righteousness by faith is available on those terms, then there's no difference between a Jew and a Greek. Anyone could believe that gospel and be saved. For he's the same Lord unto all. He's rich unto all that call upon him. 
Verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? He is anticipating the argument of his readers who would say, okay, you say that the Jews are supposed to believe on Jesus Christ, but they haven't heard. How is it you say that an Israelite is lost when all he's ever been taught is the Old Testament law and he doesn't know about Jesus Christ? He says, that's not fair. He's anticipating this argument. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, he's going to give you a quote now. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. He's quoting Isaiah 52 verse 7. So this prophecy of a preacher coming with glad tidings supposes that someone is sent to preach a message. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Isaiah 53. So he's giving us this verse to show that Isaiah anticipated that when this gospel message went forth to the Jews, when, when it was preached, that the Jews wouldn't believe it. It was predicted that they would fail to accept the message. So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Why? Because those Old Testament passages revealed that the message would be preached. It would be glad tidings. People would hear it. And that those who heard it would reject it and turn it down. But I say, have they, Israel, not heard? Is it true that they've not heard? Now he's going to quote from Psalm 19.4. Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. He is telling us that these prophecies that God gave to the nation of Israel, that we were told back there that that message had gone to the whole world during their time. In other words, all Israel was aware of these prophecies of this glad tidings of peace that were going to be preached. But I say, did not Israel know? Didn't God give them a fair warning? Again, he's anticipating the argument of his listeners. First Moses saith, he's quoting Deuteronomy 32, 21. First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation, I will anger you. Now, if you were to take the time to go back to read the context of each one of these references Paul gives, you would see that this is only a representation of the whole passage. This is only just a sign he, he puts in here, he tags, so you can go back and examine the whole scripture. If we were limited just to the quote, it wouldn't be that powerful an argument. But that quote represents a whole prophetic context. So he says, did not all Israel know? He says, God said that he would provoke the Jews to jealousy by a people that were not God's people, by a foolish nation, he would anger them. In other words, there was a prophecy that God would save Gentiles. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, he's going to give a bold statement of Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 1. I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that ask not after me. So again, he's unfolding to his Jewish congregation that the Old Testament law anticipated a gospel message, which was by faith, 
not by the law, a righteousness received by faith that was preached to Gentiles that came with a message of faith, not descending to get something or going up to bring it down, but it was in your, in your mouth, that this message, in fact, did go forth to the whole world. All the Jews heard it. But that when they heard it, according to Isaiah, that they wouldn't believe the report. He says, verse 21, but to Israel, he saith, Isaiah 65, 2, all day long, I've stretched forth my hand unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. So he said, that's what Isaiah said of the nation of Israel who heard these prophecies that God would save Gentiles by faith, that God all day long stretched forth his hand to appeal to them, but they were disobedient and gainsaying people. Now, Paul's going to address another issue here. I hope you realize that, that this is a, a progressive argument like a lawyer would put forth. This is a very detailed, progressive, logical argument based on Old Testament scriptures to prove a very needful point. This is not for sissies. You've got to use your brain to stay up with this if you're going to follow it. Uh, that's why these pastors are not studied very often as they seem so disconnected if you're not willing to take all three chapters and bring them together and take all these quotes he's got, look them up and bring them all together to get the context. That's why these three chapters have been used by Christians as sort of a smorgasbord where whatever doctrine you want to prove or deal with, you just go by and pull a few uh, little tidbits off the shelf here, take them out of context. And if you really are sort of brainless, you'll come up with uh, five points of Calvinism out of it. So all right, back to chapter 11, verse 1. Does the inclusion of the Gentiles mean that God is through with the Jews? 11.1. I say then, again, he's asking a question, anticipating the question of his audience. Hath God cast away his people? And that's what some of the Jews would accuse Paul of teaching. Paul, you're saying God's chunked us and the Gentiles have taken our place. Is that true? So this is the big question. Has God cast away his people? You remember how he started off chapter 9, verse 1? How he would give his own salvation to save them, but they weren't saved. Has God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Be very clear what Paul means when he says an Israelite. There's nothing spiritual here. There's nothing allegorical. He's not talking about some member of the church. He's talking about his bloodline. I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Now, many people have equated this word foreknow or foreknew with uh, elect. And it's nowhere similar to it. Used about six times. Let me read you one of them. 2 Peter 3.17 says, this just to give you a context of what the word foreknew means. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye. Now the following four words are translated for, for the Greek word foreknow. Seeing ye know these things before. Beware lest you also being led away with the air of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. So he says, since you foreknew these things, be careful that you're not led astray. In other words, since you knew these things already. That's all foreknow really means. It means to know beforehand. That's what foreknow means. To, to know beforehand. Real simple word. Okay. Has nothing to do with election. He says, has God cast away his people, which he foreknew. Now, what does it mean by foreknow? Well, the passages we've been reading reveal to us that God knew the nation of Israel 
and anticipated their end, he foreknew them. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? Again, a quote from 1 Kings 19.10. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, here's quote, Lord, they have killed the prophets, dig down thine altars, and I'm left alone. They seek my life. And what saith the answer of God unto him? God said, I reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. So in a time when it appeared that there was no remnant, that all was lost, he found out there was 7,000 remnant. So Paul is saying, yes, I know it appears, Paul is saying, that all the Jews have forsaken Christ. I know it appears that there are no Jews being saved. I know it appears that God's casting away, but he says, it appeared like that one time before, and Elias found out there was a remnant. And he said, look at me, I'm saved, I'm part of the remnant. So he's saying, there's a few of us who are still being saved, who are still in the family of God. So then at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Again, the word election is the choice, the choice of grace. Because of the grace of God, there is a remnant. Acts 9, 15, speaking of this election, give you an example of what the word election means. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. That's the same word that's translated elect, election. Paul was a chosen vessel, someone whom God chose, elected, called out, made him something special. It doesn't have anything to do with great eternity past when God decided who would be saved and who wasn't. It has to do with God's choice, yes, but it's not a choice that nullifies the choice of the one whom he chooses. Verse 6. And if by grace, if this remnant, this salvation is by grace. Now, when he says grace, he's talking about grace as a system. And he's going to speak of works as a system. If by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, this is a salient passage in that it compares Justification by faith with justification under the law. And the new covenant, the justification by faith, the righteousness which is the gift of God, is called grace. Whereas the justification under the law is called what? Works. It's either of grace or it's of works. I say that's salient because what it reveals is that the Old Testament saints were saved by works. It's either one or the other. It can't be both. Either today you're going to obtain the righteousness which saves through faith in Jesus Christ without any Old Testament keeping of the law. Or else you're going to attain unto righteousness through the law, which he's already told us that the man that do, does them shall live in them. In other words, you live by doing the law. And if you fail to keep the law in all points, then you're guilty of breaking the law if you break it in one point. There's not going to be any mixture. There's no salvation that is partly Sabbath keeping and partly tithing and partly keeping of the feast days and partly Jesus Christ. It's either salvation by faith and grace or it's salvation by law and works. One or the other, no mixture. What then? 
Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. That's Jacob. The descendants have not attained it. But the election hath obtained it. Now, the context really helps us out here. If he says the election hath obtained it, and, and all you've gotten is some theology, not much Bible, then you might think that what he's saying is that Israel didn't get saved, but those God elected from for the foundation of the world to be part of his bride and be saved, they're the ones who got it. And so you'd have to conclude that God is done with Israel, but he's got these elect people that he saves that are part of the church. That is not what he's saying in the least. The election, he's already told us, is that remnant of Israel. He's not even talking about the Gentiles here. He's talking about that limited number of Jews. He gave us the example of Elijah in the cave and thinking he was the only one left and finding out that God had 8,000, that there was a remnant. And last week in chapter 9, he talked about the remnant and gave many, many verses that referred to that remnant that would be saved. Do you remember that in chapter 9? That God had a remnant reserved unto himself. He says, Israel has not obtained it, but the election has obtained it. And the rest of Israel were blinded. So one group of Israel is the election. And the rest of Israel are the ones who were blinded. The following verses will bear out that interpretation. That is, that he's not talking about some people being elected in the general population and some people being blinded non-elect in the general population. He's particularly talking about the nation of Israel and this phenomena of God seemingly to set aside the nation of Israel and save the Gentiles and start a new work upon the earth as these passages have indicated that we've been reading out of the Old Testament, the prophecies. Verse 8, according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear unto this day. He's quoting from Isaiah 29, 9 through 13. Now we're going to take the time to read those four or five verses so that you can see the context of it clearly. The reason I want you to see the context is because he's saying that God gave the Jews a spirit of slumber and sleep. One group is elect and the larger group was given the spirit of slumber and sleep. Now, according to the Calvinist doctrine, this would be something God did from before the foundations of the world. That is, he elected to save a small number and he elected to harden and damn the rest of them. But let's read the context of the passage he quotes, the passage from which he draws this statement. Isaiah 29, 9, stay yourselves and wonder, cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. Hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot read it, it's sealed. And the book is delivered unto him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. He saith, I'm not learned. Therefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw nigh to me with their mouth, and with their lips they do honor me, 
but have removed their heart far from me and their fear towards me is taught by the precepts of man. So he explains what he means by these people having a veil over their eyes of being blinded and hardened. It's because they were living in sin and God withdrew his word and they said, I can't understand the word. God gave them the word. It was there. And he says, but they removed their heart from me. Now, verse nine, and David saith, this is Psalm 69, 22. He's quoting again, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back all way. So David has revealed here in Psalms, the sins of Israel. And he says, because of their sins and their unbelief, then this should be the result. Now, He's given us verses to show that God has hardened the heart, has set aside, rejected some of Israel while maintaining a remnant. And he's explained why through the context of those passages, because they sinned. Now, what's the ramifications of their having stumbled? Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, here's a question his listeners want to know. Paul, does this mean Chunk the Jews, God's through with them, God forbid. But rather, that through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now what's saying by that is this, that the Jews became insensitive to God, full of religion that was dead. He gives them his word, he gives them an opportunity to repent. They don't repent, they reject the Messiah. So he saves the Gentiles. Well, they see the Gentiles finding God, enjoying God, walking in holiness. They see the Gentiles experiencing the things they always sought for. And the Jews look at that and they say, man, we're missing something. How is it that they ended up actually achieving the things that we always sought after, but never could arrive at? So he said the object here is that the Jews who've now been set aside would see the Gentiles being saved and become jealous and say, i got to get back in this. I don't want to be left out. Now, if the fall of them, verse 12, be the riches of the world, that is because they fell, the world got included into the family, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? He said, if by the Jews being diminished, the Gentiles receive riches and fullness, what would it be like if the Jews were received back into the fold? He said, wouldn't that be a greater blessing than ever? For I speak to you Gentiles, talking directly to the Gentiles now, insomuch as I'm apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. He says, I am trying to extend and expand my office as apostle of the Gentiles. I'm trying to get as many Gentiles saved as I can. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. He says, being an apostle of the Gentiles, I'm trying to get as many Gentiles saved as I can. And get them enjoying God as much as I can. He said, because my real heart's desire is to save Israel, my brethren. He said, I've been given the ministry of working with you Gentiles. And I don't see many of my Jewish brethren getting saved. So he said, when I preach hard and work hard to get you Gentiles saved, it's because I'm hoping my Jewish brethren will see the fruit in your life and want to be saved also. 
If by any means I might provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. And if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? He's anticipating a future event. For if the first fruit be holy, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. So he's saying that the root of the tree was grounded in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, if the root be holy, then the, the tree is holy. And if some of the branches be broken off, that's the nation of Israel, the Jews, some of the Jews, if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, that's the church, the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, the, the Jews were a tame, cultured olive tree. The Gentiles were a wild olive tree. So the natural branches are broken off the good olive tree and a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them becomes partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So he says, God planted a tree in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It grew up, had branches on it, which were the children of Israel. God came along and stripped the branches off and then went out and got a wild olive tree, which are Gentiles and cut branches off and came in and grafted those little buds into the trunk of this wild olive tree. And the result was that the olive tree began to bear fruit again. And it bore holy fruit. Why? Because the root was holy. A warning. Verse 18. Boast not against the branches. In other words, as a Gentile, don't say, okay, uh, Gentiles are special and, God, and Jews are not. Boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. In other words, the Jewish nation, the root of God's planting is what bears you. Thou will say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. See, I'm special because the branches were broken off and I was grafted in. Verse 20, well, that's true. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. Now, this is a salient verse. Why did God reject the nation of Israel, why was only a remnant saved? Why were some elected because and some rejected? Why they were broken off. It was an act of unfaithfulness. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. Now God is warning the Gentile church. Now I say Gentile, in fact it's Gentile and Jewish church, but it's predominantly Gentile. And so to speak of it, I call it Gentile church. God is Warning the Gentile, predominantly Gentile church, to fear, to fear in regard to what God might do nationally. That is, it's a warning that if at some point in history, God set aside the Jews nationally and saved the Gentiles, there may come a point in history, in fact, there will, when God sets aside the Gentiles and returns nationally back to the Jews. He said, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, Israel, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Now you can see how if you took this out of context, and you made this apply to the personal experience of an individual Christian, what you'd have is a warning that you might lose your salvation. Can you see that? And that's why it's so important to get everything in its context. As I said, you could take these three chapters and pull all kinds of weird things out of them if you didn't handle it accurately. 
For if you spare not the natural branches, take heed lest they also spare not thee. Behold, therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. So the church must continue in God's goodness or be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, their responsibility is to believe. So if they decide to stop being unbelievers and become believers, they should be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. So he's following his analogy that these wild branches are laying off to one side, having been cut away. But there's a warning, stay in the faith, because if you don't, God will cut you off and graft the Jews back in, which he will do one day. Now here's a mystery revealed in verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Something God has kept hidden and is making known. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Paul thinks there's a danger of the Gentile church getting arrogant against the Jews. He says, I want to warn you of this, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. This is a key passage in prophecy right here. One of the most key passages in Bible prophecy. This is one that sets aside all the amillennialist and postmillennialist. This is a passage which demands pre-millennial interpretation. And I think pre-tribulational. He said, and so all Israel shall be saved until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now, what's he said? He's saying, though blindness has happened to Israel, it's in part and there will come a time when the fullness of the Gentiles, and that is when God has saved all the Gentiles he's going to save. There'll come a time when the church is complete and God has finished his work with the Gentiles. When those prophecies about taking out a people for his namesake, about saying, you're my people, and they saying, you're my God. When that is complete, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and the last member of the church is saved, he said at that point, all Israel will be saved. Now, some people take this passage, all Israel, and think, no, wait a minute, how could ever, that means there wouldn't be a single lost Jew left on the face of the earth. I want to tell you there will be such a time when there won't be a single lost Jew left on the face of the earth. That's the beginning of the millennium. When all the unsaved ones are judged, those who receive the mark of the beast are damned, and those who survived it are brought into the millennium, and there's nothing but saved Jews on the earth. But that's not what he's talking about. This all Israel is as compared to a remnant. You remember he's been talking about a remnant would be saved? That he was part of the remnant? He's saying there will come a time when not just a remnant of Jews, but the whole nation will be converted to Christ. So this all doesn't mean all, every single Jew necessarily in its context. But what it's saying is there will come a time when the whole nation, not just part of it, will be saved. As it is written, he's quoting again Isaiah 59, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer 
and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, a prophecy, Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. Verse 27, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So it's a prophecy of a future day when all the sins of Israel are removed. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. See, at the time that Paul was writing this, the Jews were killing the Christians. As concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. That is, God had elected them. God had elected those, think about it, that were enemies of the church. That's what he's saying. Those that were persecuting unto death, the Christians, were called God's elect. They weren't going to go to heaven, but they were God's elect. Why? Because God had chosen them as a nation for this special purpose. Verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Again, we come across one of those famous verses now looking at it in its context. I've heard it used so many times about gifts of the spirit, gifts of tongues and gifts of healings that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. So if God ever gave a gift on the face of the earth, he's never taken it away. Now, I'm not arguing that God has taken away any gifts. I'm just saying that's not what this passage is saying. When he says the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, he's talking about in regard to the nation of Israel. That is, God is not through with the Jews. If he gave them the promised land, it's still theirs. If he called them to be the head of a great nation, they will be. If he promised them that he would deliver them, send the deliverer in Zion, as the prophecy we just read said, verse 26, then he will. He says, verse 30, for as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. When God sets someone aside, it's not because he's denying them something good. It is the only last method God has got for delivering what is good. When God sets aside a nation, it's because at that point, they're so thoroughly saturated with disobedience and unbelief that by setting them aside, he hopes to provoke them to jealousy and show mercy upon them. So when God brought judgment upon the Jews and sent them down into Egypt to be slaves, it was not because he was throwing them off, even though it lasted 400 years and seemed like it. It was so he could gather them to himself again. When God sent the children of Israel into Syria and into Babylon, it was not because he was totally through with them, although those people who lived and died there felt like it was. But it was because he had plans to gather them back in 70 years. When God scattered the nation of Israel throughout all the nations, had the temple destroyed, as Jesus said it would be, the nation destroyed, and then scattered to the ends of the earth, it was not because he was through with them. It's because he promised to gather them together once again, and all Israel would be saved. So this is a very key passage in prophecy. Now, Verse 33, 34, 35, 36. These next four verses, Paul reflects on these three chapters and on all that he said. Remember what troubled him? He was troubled by the fact that Israel was not saved. And he said, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that shows mercy. In other words, I can't, 
I can't run the race. I can't will them to be saved and make it happen. He said, there's a remnant. He explained all, he's explained it all to us so well. And so Paul is in this place now where he just is preaching day and night to save Gentiles and to try to provoke a few Jews to jealousy that they too might be saved and become part of the remnant. And Paul's anticipating that day when all Israel will be saved. And he's reflecting on what God is doing, how he's doing it. And he says in verse 33, all the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. In other words, he said, this thing's too deep for me. It's rich. It's deep. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In other words, I can search it, but I won't understand it. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? He said, you know, God didn't consult me when he decided to do this. Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul has concluded his thoughts here with just saying God's a lot bigger than me. He's a lot smarter than me. He knows things I don't know. And he hadn't asked my opinion. And it's too far beyond me to understand it all. So all things are for him. They exist for him. All things are through him. That is, all things are dispensed and operate in function through the medium of Christ. And all things are to him. That is, all things wind up and end back in Christ. That's the object of all things, to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. In regard to the Jews and the Gentiles. So, Paul has given a detailed argument, absolutely packed full of Old Testament quotes, showing that this was something he got anticipated, has brought about, maybe too big for our mind to comprehend it all, but he's given us a little glimpse of it. He's un unfolded the mystery, and he says, to God be glory, one day all Israel will be saved. So we'll stop there with uh, Romans 11. Take up 12 next week.